0: What are the motivators of your life at work? What are the motivators? You might want husbands to ask your wives whether they figure that those motivate work motivators are still activated when you get home from work, <laughs> uh, whether they actually say, hey, change your attitude. I don't know. Dee's said that to me more than once. But what are the motivators for your workday life? I ask the question because when we look at 1 Peter, and we're only introducing it today, and I'm asking you, if you will, to read it for yourself over the next few weeks before we actually start a week-by-week series going through it. But so please read it. But when we look at 1 Peter... Um, at first, you can read it and say, "This is fairly typical evangelical jargonized thing." We know a lot of these; they're, they're proof texts for us. We know the language, we know the jargon. It's it's too simplistic for the workplace. But Peter is writing to those who are dispersed within five Roman provinces in what we now know as Turkey. They were living within the pagan environment of the day. He calls them the dispersion. We just happened, we have just happened on the name dispersion for all those of you who come on Sunday and then are dispersed to every part of Bristol, the United Kingdom and sometimes the world. Because that's where you live and do your stuff. You are dispersed. Now, Peter is writing to the dispersion, the people living in the middle of the pagan world as Christians. So, if his things sound rather simplistic, perhaps we need to look at them again with different eyes, or perhaps we need to ask the question whether the things that are our motivators... perhaps the wrong motivators because God called Peter to be an apostle and the leader of the bunch that made him known reading one Peter we need to remember he probably wrote it 30 years after the death of Jesus Read different books, you'll get different answers to that question. But it's at least 30 years after the death of Jesus. And look back to what you know about him in the Gospels, and, and what were the things that were the biggies, the big points in his life? Well, Jesus walked up a beach and called him, and, and he immediately left his boats. He'd already seen enough about Jesus to say that this was a rabbi who was worth following. Then you remember there was a time when Jesus wanted to use his boat and uh, afterwards he said, uh, launch yourself into the deep for a catch. And Peter said, look, hang on, you're a carpenter, I'm a fisherman. We won't catch any fish. We've toiled all night. No way, Jose, we won't catch anything. Nevertheless, since it's you who's telling me, I'll do it. And remember how they caught such a load of fish, he had to call his partners to help them and bring it in. And when the fish was now flapping in the boat, he fell down on his knees and he had a revelation at that moment of, the, of who Jesus is beyond anything expected. Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. You think Jesus knows nothing about the workplace? Ask Peter. <laughs> and then, of course, there was that fantastic time when uh, Jesus commended him. Oh, Simon, son of ba- ba- Jonah, son of Jonah, so wasn't flesh and blood revealed to you that I'm the Christ, the Son of the Living God? No, it's my father in heaven told you this. Good job there were no doors, he'd not have got through them. And Jesus began to speak about his departure and the way he was going to be crucified, remember. And Peter immediately stepped in in his new position of knowledge and said, not so, Lord, that won't happen to you. And Jesus turned round. I reckon he looked over his shoulder. I don't think he looked into Peter's eyes and said, get behind me, Satan. You're not on the side of God, but of men. That was a big deal, I think, for Peter, to be so right and then so wrong, to understand so much and to understand so little, which then takes us to the point, the really... Big experience in his life which he would have never ever forgotten was that moment when he denied Jesus, do you remember? Denied knowing him he's been all bullshy and proud and, and uh, swashbuckling in the garden when they've come to arrest Jesus, he's cut off somebody's ear ha <laughs> ha, that'll teach you, and Jesus has put it back on again, that's weird And then, having been so brave there, he gets to the high priest's courtyard and some serving woman says to him, huh, you're one of his. Oh, no, I'm not. And in the end, he ends up swearing. I don't know him, all right? Then there's a death. Death and he can't forgive himself. And there's a resurrection which is glorious, and he's given a special privileged view of Jesus. But he can't forgive himself. And days go by, and then he goes back to his fishing, and he can't forgive himself. And then Jesus appears on the beach and has breakfast, you remember? And the big deal for Peter is not that God, not that Christ doesn't forgive him, but he couldn't forgive himself. But at that point he did, because he was recommissioned. All the stuff went in the bucket. And he was recommissioned. I remind you of those things which you know, because it's astonishing to me how when you read through the first letter of Peter, Time and again, he goes back to the point of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Those experiences, his denial and his experience of the death of Christ, and his subsequent being, subsequently being reclaimed by Christ and within himself, his own self respect being restored to him. and a a commission being given to him, those things are absolutely core, it seems to me, of what motivated him in all the rest of those 30 years until he writes this letter. So I want to ask you, what is the core of what motivates you? Because that's all this letter is about. What motivates you? Do you believe with all your heart of course you're answering god not me what is written in the opening chapter of peter praise be to the god and father of our lord jesus christ in his great mercy he has given us you can put yourself in there he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead and into an inheritance which can never perish, spoil or fade. Which is kept in heaven for you. For you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you're filled with inexpressible and glorious joy for you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Do you believe that? Do I? Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they weren't serving themselves but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels longed to look into these things. Isn't that awesome? Now, I confess I can't take all this in. The greatness of God who cares for a sinner like me. And plenty of things went in this bucket earlier when we were confessing our sins and throwing our bits of paper in the bucket. A lot of my stuff went in there. And yet, in his great mercy, he's given us this living hope. Peter speaks several times in this letter about the sufferings that people have already experienced as Christians, or may suffer, or which are coming. There was no general um, imperial edict at at that time that Christians should be set against. But depending on the Roman governors in the different provinces, there were outbreaks of persecution here, there, other places. It's a bit like us reading the newspapers. There's a nurse here who can't wear her cross. There's a, a brother there who has had to go to the European Court of Human Rights. There, there's somebody else here who, for being a Christian, has been sacked. It's here, it's there, it's somewhere else. And it was like that within the provinces. But some of the persecution was getting stronger. And Peter probably wrote this from Rome and it was probably during the time of Nero who was not a nice man. So he sees this stuff coming. And part of his reason for writing is that these people who are in the dispersion, when they're standing up for Jesus Christ, in the place where they live, where they work, in the home, with their bosses, with the local, with the local um, political beings, they're all mentioned in there in the terms of the day. When people are living for Christ and suffer for it, they suffer for it remembering that Christ suffered first for them and he did it as an example to them. And they don't revile others because they remember that when Christ suffered, didn't revile when he was reviled. And they don't curse others because they remember that Jesus came to bless them and this is what you and I are called to. Those are Peter's words, this is what we're called to you see. And, uh, and if we lose our lives, well, we remember that Christ gave up his life, but he suffered because there was this great hope before him, and we have a living hope And the worst that this life can throw at us, whether it brings us suffering or trouble and ultimately death, it cannot destroy what God has given us in this living hope we have, which is lodged with Christ in the the heavenly places and which is ours for eternity. God has set this before us. It's, It's our hope. You can't beat me. You can make me cry. You can make me go, Ouch. You can lock me away, you can smash me up, you can make me feel humiliated, you can cut me in pieces, but you can't take away the Holy Spirit God has given me, because through Christ's faith in Christ, I have a living hope. Now then, Peter is saying to the dispersion of his day, because you have this living hope, and because you only have it because God sent his son who actually was crucified for you in these terrifying, terrible circumstances, he is your courage and your strength. He is the one who has given you the life which has provided the living hope. Therefore, live for him. And live for him not just with the words you speak. Speak the words when somebody asks for the reason for the hope that's in you. But still do it gently and with respect. Speak the words, but live the life. And there's an awful lot in 1 Peter about living the life the way that Jesus did when he approached and went through his death. Peter keeps coming back to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is probably why Paul also said he determined to know nothing amongst people except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So we've heard a lot about holiness this morning. Let's come back to that, because Peter mentions that. He says, you be holy as the Father is holy, as God is holy. Now, I purchased the authorised Jewish prayer book I purchased it because it had an introduction by um, um, Jonathan Sachs, the chief rabbi, and I wanted to understand, if possible, some of their concepts of prayer. This is a Jewish view of holiness. Holy. In general, this means separated, set apart, standing outside. So, if God has called us holy, he's set us apart for himself. You understand? Used of God, it means he who stands outside nature because he made nature. He is holy. Used of the people of Israel, now this is, as in, for instance, Exodus 19, you are a holy nation. Used of the people Israel, holy means the people who stand outside the normal laws of nations defined by land, language, race or political structure because they are the sole nation whose constitutive reason for being is to serve God as his witnesses in the world. Now, that's quite a mouthful. But it's a bit scary, isn't it? Because in his letter, Peter says, you who have been shown such, such, we who have been shown such mercy and have been given this living hope have been denominated by God a new nation, a holy priesthood, We are the new Israel in Peter's terms. And so when he's thinking as a Jew who's met his Messiah and talking about Christian holiness, he's saying that we are those people who, because of the law of Christ in our hearts and his example leading up to and beyond the cross, because we are Christ's people, We stand outside the normal laws of nations. We live by the law of Christ. Nations defined by land, language, race, or political structure, the culture of our day is not what we live by. And that's a tough one. We are called to bring the life of God into the cultures of our day so that is transformed into something which is God honouring. And applied to us Peter is saying Christians are those whose raison d'etre is to serve God as his witnesses to the world. So again in his letter he says again and again um that we're living for the glory of God. In another place, he calls us God's possession. We are servants of God. So it comes back to this again, doesn't it? What motivates us when we leave these doors? When we get on the train tomorrow morning, walk in the office, say hello to the secretary, tell the children in the classroom to be quiet, whatever it is. What are our motivators? We are who we are because we were ransomed with the precious blood of one like a lamb without blemish. We are who we are because of that. Otherwise, we're not What we are. He suffered for us, says Peter, leaving an example. What was his attitude when he was suffering? It strikes me that he suffered because he refused to give up his identity. He was the son of God, he still is. When they said, are you the Christ, the son of the living God? He just stood firm, didn't he? He couldn't deny himself. And for this, they killed him. So, looking inside myself, and then asking Peter to ask you as well (laughs) Who are you? What are you? Am I a Winfield or am I a Christian? What comes first? I am a Christian called Winfield, but Jesus is my Lord. Am I a Christian? Or when I worked in a proper job, you might say, am I simply a clerical assistant? Or am I a Christian? Jesus suffered, leaving us as an example. By his wounds, we are healed. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. All these things. Now I'm going to stop in a moment. But I'm going to ask you some questions. Number one, are you certain, and I'm using jargon language here just as I find it in the scripture, has God ransomed you from the past sins and your former way of life and thinking and attitude by the precious blood of Jesus? Has He? Do you need to be reminded that he did once and has done for all time? In ransoming you, dying on the cross, Peter says he was a living stone rejected by men. If he has ransomed you and he has become your Lord, Would you be prepared to be rejected by men because you own Jesus? Jesus suffered for you, leaving you an example. Are you prepared to acknowledge Jesus in your home life? your work life, your social, your political life, in such a way that it may, though we hope it doesn't, bring elements of suffering into your life. Misunderstanding, abuse, verbal humiliation, being brought onto the carpet in the boss's office. Because Jesus suffered, leaving you an example and me. And the thing which has held me out when people have put me in court, which they've done in Christian court, in churches that is, which they've done a couple of times, is to remember that Jesus was led like a sheep, a lamb led to the slaughter, didn't open his mouth. Don't revile. Don't take revenge. Show mercy. Be understanding. Be generous. Honour the emperor. (laughs) Jesus suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Do you go with God into your daily life? Or do you leave him on the doormat for when you get home? Nehemiah was at work with him. In the king's presence, he offered up an arrow prayer and then trusted himself to the God whom he couldn't see in this foreign pagan land of Babylon. So, there are the questions. I think I'd better stop there. Please read it for yourself. Come back and challenge me if you think I've got some of the emphases wrong, because if we're going to preach through it, we need to have that conversation. (laughs) But I finish by saying this, our faith and our hope are in God and in nothing else. And Peter says we're to live in this world as those who have set their hope upon the ultimate revelation of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, make this dispersion of ours something so powerful for you that the name of Jesus is recognized through actions, answers to prayer, by word, attitude. We want people sort of far away from this building, Lord, who would never be able to come here because they work in other places, through us to come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. We want others to say, I want to live in this world as somebody who now has my hope set upon the revelation of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, do this with us. (sighs) Astonish us. we're asking lord i am asking remind me lord remind us i am asking that this time one year's time we have many stories just to marvel at of how you've worked through one and another we ask it in jesus name amen